Hello everyone, this is Mark Iskowitz, Executive Editor at MMM, and welcome to this edition of the MMM Podcast. You may have heard that pharma's customers don't hold the industry in the highest light. Last week, results of the Gallup poll revealed that pharma was dead last on the list of major industries, just below the federal government. What's behind this abysmal ranking and how do we fix it? My guest today, new media, marketing, and technology entrepreneur Mark Bard, who's also one of the most trusted names in digital, is going to give us a marketer's take on the poll results, based on findings from the latest research from the Digital Health Coalition, of which Mark is co-founder, and give us a rundown on the latest research and trends. All this and more coming up right now. Mark, welcome, and how are you? Thank you, Mark. Doing well. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Absolutely. Thanks for being here in the studio. We really appreciate it. Uh, you and I have known each other since 2001 or so. Um, I would say that research um, on the pharma industry's digital adoption is in your blood, so to speak, because you're really uh, one of the early uh, adopters there. And I recall we met at an industry clash in King of Prussia, PA, of all places. Uh, it was the era when e-commerce and e-this and e-that uh, were all the rage. And my editors uh, asked me to go down and cover this meeting. And I recall you and Joe Farris, who co-founded Manhattan Research, uh, together with you, uh, you had uh, gave me a rundown on this company. Um, I think you had recently received your MBA um, from University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and an MHA from the School of Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill. Pretty impressive background. Uh, and you, as I said, introduced me to this company known as Manhattan Research, uh, which became pretty big in the syndicated research area. So tell, tell me about, you know, why you decided to start that company and, um, uh, and, and you know, the background there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, when I went to school uh, a few years ago, by the way, <laughs> uh, was in the business school and the School of Public Health at the same time. And it was fascinating to me because you, you were in different worlds. And I always kind of joked, you would go to the business school and you would have discussions. If they were health related, it was about how do you make money from this thing called healthcare, hmm. where you would walk across campus to the School of Public Health and you would discuss, is healthcare a universal right? Uh, so there were very different worlds. And mm. myself, I was always interested in healthcare. I think like most people are, we're, we're all part of the system, whether it's us, family, uh, we're interacting with the system. And one thing that always interested me was, of course, like mo most people, was new technology, how technology changes things. And actually in grad school uh, was one of the first times I started writing uh, I, to my blood as well, I guess, in addition to data, mm -hmm. I actually wrote an article on how technology was going to transform the healthcare industry in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, and I've told this story to a few people, and some people ha say, how'd you get involved in pharma? And oddly enough, an executive at GSK, which was right down the road from Chapel Hill, I, mm -hmm. I had published this in an in a industry journal, a peer-reviewed journal, and uh, he read it and said, I really think this is interesting about how technology is going to change the business of healthcare." And he brought me into the industry and had exposure. And one thing that I learned was, wow, this is a really fascinating part of the healthcare system we don't really think about. Uh, it's one of these things that it's not a doctor, it's not a hospital, but it's a key part. Uh, and the mm -hmm. cool thing was these companies were really, in many cases, trying to think, what does the future look like? So that was some of the initial exposure. I've always loved data. Uh, I like it in the sense of not just how do you think about how things are going to change, but the way I always think of it is how do you connect the dots? And whether that data is for investing or that data is to try and make some kind of a decision based right. on information, if you have enough dots, you get a pretty good idea where it's going. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not entirely predictive, but if you look at enough data over enough time, and computers really help us do this a lot better than they did 20 years ago, right, is you have a pretty good idea where it's going. 
And you can also get a sense from data of what things are maybe more hype than reality. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing in healthcare and technology where you say, well, right. here's some really cool things. Uh, you know, you give examples, things like, um, you know, e-prescribing in some of those early days or some of these, you mentioned the E, there was a lot of E's. Yes. And yes. some E's like e-detailing necessarily didn't translate into some of the growth mm-hmm. that many people mm-hmm. had thought. Whereas other things like EMR certainly just became a way of doing business because they added right. significant value or they were mandated. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was my mm-hmm. interest. And as you mentioned, you know, Manhattan Research was kind of this way to, uh, you know, capture a lot of the customer preferences and work with the industry to say, what do we think is happening? How do we think things are going to trend over the next two to three years? You could spend a little bit of time talking about 10 years out, but pharma, like most industries, no one gets paid in most cases to think 10 years out, uh, mm-hmm. unless you're maybe in the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was always that interesting conversation of where do we see things headed and how, in many cases, how will technology help us do things faster, better, cheaper? Or, as you have today, and I think it's a really interesting time where it's not just technology to make advertising faster, better, cheaper, and more Mm -hmm. targeted. Now we're in this era where technology does have the potential to disrupt the way we do things in healthcare. You Mm -hmm. know, whether it's digital therapeutics or it's information that's used or data used to make a decision about what you should be doing whether it's mm-hmm. a pill or something else. So I think it's right. you know, a very interesting time. And as you had mentioned, you know, Manhattan Research was a certain, you know, very, I really enjoyed that time and kind of the, you know, things transition over time and, um, you know, had an opportunity to uh, sell that business, exit that business. And, you right. know, right. I'm still fascinated in- by the industry and I didn't want to take any of your talking points here, but yeah, it, it was a great time. And, you know, I still, data still in my blood, I think in many sure, ways. Sure, sure. And, and we all sort of, Watched very closely whenever the eFarm, uh, the, the cyber citizen uh, results uh, came out, or the eFarm, eFarm a physician uh, results came out. You know those were uh, closely watched data points, uh, and those those stemmed from Manhattan Research. So you sold uh, Manhattan Research in two thousand eight, right? To to then uh, DRG, um, and you went on to then start the Digital Health Coalition. Uh, so t- tell us about that, the who, what, when, why, and where. Yeah, so the Digital Health Coalition, the DHC, it's a nonprofit based out of New York. And as I kind of tell the story from that, it came out of, I was a talking head for so many years. And one of the frustrations of being a talking head, and this is, it's an actual true story, I won't name the company, uh, but there was a lot of talking heads in the back of the room. And we sort of joked among ourselves that this meeting is going to be a conversation, but nothing comes of it. It's we'll just talk about what's going to change, Mm. but how do you translate that into actually moving the industry forward? And that was one thing that originally kind of sparked my interest and this idea to say, how do you bring together not the people that get up and say this industry is so backwards, but how do you find those people in the industry that say, we know we have limitations, legal compliance, all those fun things, but we do want to make things better. Because mm-hmm. we think we can use technology to make better decisions, to get closer to the patients, to deliver information in the way that the customer wants. And that was really one of the original ideas behind the Digital Health Coalition. So it was formed as a 501c3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was really around like late 2011, 2012. By and, you and Joe and, and then Mark Monceau as well, right? Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. And the idea was to bring together initially just a handful of companies to talk about solutions. And the problem at the time, if you remember around that time, social media was this big issue. And it was argued that we're not doing anything as an industry because the FDA didn't give us permission. 
And that was just really kind of came out of, we went and talked to folks and said, what's the big issue of the day? And so social media was really one of those initial talking points we centered around. Mm -hmm. And we spent, you know, maybe it was about two years around that topic where we would solicit feedback from pharma companies, from agencies, from the technology providers to talk about what does good look like? What are some guiding principles? We also sat down with the FDA and had a number of meetings talking about Mm -hmm. what we're hearing and kind of trying to share consensus thinking. And what happened over time was this idea of it wasn't just a social media organization. The idea was how do we talk about innovation? How do we share good ideas? Kind of, you know, in the spirit of TED is let great ideas spread, right? Mm -hmm. Is let's celebrate who's doing things well. And it could have Mm -hmm. been instead of just talking about social media specifically, it could be let's talk about how a company has turned on comments. Let's talk about how they got over some of these fears around Mm -hmm. adverse events. And those were some of the best ways to say, here's what good looks like. And we've done that over the years with various projects, looking at social media, at mobile media. Um, And we've also done, I mean, I still love data. I love research. You know, we continue to do a number of projects. And the way I talk about or think about the projects we still do to this day is they're studies that may not get done otherwise. Right. It's looking at big picture. It's not a tracking study. It's not a deep dive into what mm-hmm. oncologists think of mm-hmm. these specific or channel platforms. relevance or something. Yeah, like, like a that. media mix study. Right. It's more of trying to understand some of these big picture trends, mm-hmm. not only from the pharma industry point of view, but go out, talk to consumers, talk to physicians, uh, and really start to think about what are some of these trends and where we see you know, opportunities over the next two to five years. Right. So it's, it's become that collective voice uh, for the industry because you're you're gathering a lot of input, you know, from real real marketers at real companies. Yeah. Um, and then putting it out there as kind of like a white horse, you know, white knight, you know, kind of no one else is going to do this research. We're going to step in and do it, We're, you know, as a nonprofit. You're also currently CEO of Digital Insights Group, which is a leading research and advisory firm. So you, you do that still on, on, on the side, uh, I take it, in, in, in your spare time. Yeah, and I, I, you know, DHC is really something. It began as a passion project, and uh, Christine Franklin, who's the executive director, you know, she's still, uh, she's done a great job. So you, mm-hmm. I think sure. uh, many yeah. people knew her from the past with uh, DTC National and events. And events was something that we didn't necessarily start out with thinking about for DHC. It was this idea that kind of came from people saying, hey, this is great that we're having some of these conversations, but we'd like to do some in-person type uh, conversations as well and networking. Mm-hmm. And that sort of evolved into us doing more of those. And uh, mm-hmm. we've received some great feedback on that. And, you know, certainly we don't want to be the 15th Digital Pharma uh, conference out there. Uh, so we yeah. do try and do it in a unique way. And one thing that we do is that is a little different is we, we host the majority of our meetings at the pharma companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's been them saying, you know, hey, you seem to have a lot of interesting People within the organization, can you bring in and kind of do this, you know, innovation day or something to that effect? And Mm -hmm. so that's been a fun thing, too, is kind of moving from being the talking head at these events. And I still speak and participate in the meetings. But, you know, it's kind of fun to curate content and say, hey, how do we talk about the relevant topics? Bring some smart people in. Um, And one thing that's fun for me, too, is I always try and figure out how do we bring startups or kind of people not necessarily living this day to day where a startup that has thought about, hey, how's a new, what's a new way to share pictures or what's a new way to do messaging mm-hmm. uh, in the healthcare industry and kind of spark. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because people just get so siloed in their thinking right, sometimes right. is let's think about how this industry is changing. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, you know, business model in terms of bringing the content to the companies themselves. Um, sure, that's uh, that's that sounds like it's it's, it's resonating. Um, so we'll get to the DHC's latest research in a minute. I just before that I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the biggest stories of last week, if not the biggest story, was the results of the latest Gallup poll uh, measuring how Americans view major industries. And pharma was dead last, with 58% having a negative view and only 20% taking a positive one. And that was even worse than the public's opinion on the federal government, which came in last in the survey from 2011 to 2018. The healthcare industry ranked just above the federal government with 48% having a negative view. So as a mutual colleague of ours, you know, Lucy Rose had noted on social, um, this shows that although the industry bills itself as healthcare and patient-centric, according to this finding, consumers do not believe the industry authentically cares about them. So first, you know, Mark, from your, from your perspective, what's behind this What's behind the industry lack of favorability and trust, and, and how can we fix that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a phenomenal question. Um, this term or this industry customer experience is something I've spent mm-hmm. kind of the past two to three years trying to really get a better understanding of. And it kind of started with these initial ideas. And obviously, things like net promoter score has been around for a long mm-hmm. time. But I started digging deeper, and it wasn't in healthcare per se. And if you really dig deep, you see that a lot of the innovation happens in travel, in auto, mm-hmm in uh, you know, financial services, where you have these industries that are really truly centered around the customer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't use the term customer-centric. And what's interesting is a lot of those companies that are on the top of that Gallup poll, they don't come out and say, we're customer-centric or we're focused on the customer. They just are. It's what they do. Mm -hmm. Everything they do. There are are travel industry CEOs that have dashboards of customer metrics Mm -hmm. of how well they're doing, how well their recommendation scores are, uh, loyalty type metrics. And it's not something that we talk about necessarily in healthcare. Uh, You see it within hospitals because there is a lot of type of patient satisfaction or scoring that's been going on for many years. We don't necessarily think of it as an experiential, you know, delivering, uh, exceeding their expectations. Uh, And it's, it's a great question of this one that just recently came out of this idea of peel it back a little bit. And you mentioned Lucy Rose, where she had some comments online, is you peel it back a little bit and you say, yeah, what is going on? Mm-hmm. It's not middle of the pack. It's certainly not a situation where it's in the upper quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. You look at it, you've really got to do a little bit of soul searching and say, why? And certainly we don't want to get into the, 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 the PR issues or the political conversations that happen around some parts of the industry, but just strip it back to these bare, very bare questions of, mm-hmm. do your customers like you? And for any industry, whether you're middle of the pack or last, if you're below the average, you really do have to ask some of those tough questions of mm-hmm. why do my customers feel this way? Right. Now, pharma is a little bit different too because certainly physicians are a, are a customer, very mm-hmm. important customer, just like payers are a customer as well. And you could look and make the argument, well, physicians do have generally mm-hmm. a, a somewhat well, you know, uh, the opinion of pharma is different than a patient, right? Mm-hmm. And that's you could balance that with some different research to show, wow, in oncology, certain companies do extremely well. Oncologists mm-hmm. love certain companies because they're providing life-saving therapies. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly mm-hmm. in, in respiratory, there are companies that excel where physicians would look and say, wow, these companies really exceed my expectations based mm-hmm. on what they deliver to me as a company. Okay. But we've got to disconnect with patients. And I think that's right. something we have to right. think about. And you know, when we talked about technology 10 years, 15 years ago, and you mentioned all these E's, 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 one of the first things I remember writing way back in the early days was this idea of the evolution of content to commerce to connectivity to care. 
And it was this great, it was kind of one of those first things, you know, you put together to say, I'm going to get some opinions on paper. And it's this idea that technology is eventually going to really drive not just the connections and the communication, but it's going to help us do better care. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've seen that happen in many ways Mm -hmm. in pharma. Uh, We see how technology helps us do better targeting. You know, certainly from an innovation perspective, you think about the advent of Google, which, wow, that was amazing. Now you get people when they're actually midstream and the when they're starting the patient journey. And now you really start to think about how does technology help me get closer, mm-hmm. right? And there's all these really fundamental questions about if customer experience, a lot of that happens after you've acquired the customer, right? You give an example, like in the auto industry, Porsche. A lot of the Porsche data analysis comes after you've bought the Porsche. I can spend a ton of money on the data analysis to make sure where do I target this person who's the primary target to be my first customer. But a lot of those auto companies, whether it's a Porsche, you know, uh, Mercedes, someone else, they're spending a lot to understand how to keep you, how mm-hmm. to maintain that relationship over time. And, you know, it's a great question, again, in pharma is how do we better understand customer experience for the long term? And the counter to that is there's always a reality check to a lot of this, right, yeah. is Porsche may have a 20, 30 year lifetime value for someone if they get them early enough, right? Mm-hmm. They can mm-hmm. keep them around for, right. you know, four iterations of the car. What is the lifetime value in pharma? And, and these are, I'm not the first person to ask this question, you know, obviously, but in some categories, you may say it is about that first fill. It is about that acquisition mm-hmm. where there's not necessarily a lifetime value I equate with it. Uh, but in other conditions, certainly it may be a chronic condition, diabetes, you know, mm-hmm. RA or mm-hmm. something else where you say it really is about how do I think about this is the first step right. in the journey. How do I make sure that I'm delivering on the experience that this patient expects? Right, right. And so, you know, as, as, as you pointed out to me on the phone, we were going over this, you know, prior to the podcast, you know, things that get done in pharma are typically things that move the needle. You know, on, on the commercial side, that would be like commercial ops, sales force, clinical trials, that kind of thing. CX has been talked about as a movement, but... Um, uh, but, you know, um, as a way to become more patient-centric, it really hasn't taken off. We haven't really seen the pull through there, suffice it to say. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the other things that really haven't, you know, come to fruition, you know, from your perspective a little bit later on the podcast. But, um, you know, I think your comments, you know, that, you know, does or your question, does CX really matter in healthcare? Um, you know, what, what do you think? I mean, when you hear a company like Amazon, you know, we, we interviewed Amazon's new chief medical officer, Malik Majmadar, uh, who came over from MGH, in Massachusetts General Hospital, you know, also, a co- you know, an organization, you know, that's that stack with talent, you know, an innovation ethos, you know, that, that you know, perve- permeates the organization. But, you know, Amazon, you know, he came there, you know, because they're closer to the customer. You know, he said he feels closer to the customer than he ever has, you know, as a physician, you know, in terms of how to deliver, uh, um, you know, that experience at population scale and to help people, you know, turn more toward healthy, healthy habits. So, you know, I put it to you. Do, do, do you think CX really matters in healthcare? Yeah. And it, it, it's a great question. And one way to kind of oversimplify this is imagine a quadrant where you have kind of four boxes and you've got to put all the customers in one of these boxes. And there's different dimensions to the effect of there's CX, or there's customer experience or customer satisfaction. And then in the other dimension, there's kind of this willingness to switch or substitution. There's a lot of different ways you could look at it. But imagine that you force all customers into these different buckets. And there's one bucket of if they're not satisfied with the customer experience, what's that willingness to switch or what's kind of the defection or the loss rate? And this is a really good question that in some industries, 
the switch rate or the substitution or the impact of loyalty, you know, if you don't uh, deliver on loyalty, they can switch. You're going to switch mm-hmm. Delta to American, American mm-hmm. to United, or you're going to switch within cars. In healthcare, it's very interesting. You may have a local market where from a hospital perspective, you do have a substitution. Now, your insurance coverage may impact where you go or where you will go. Pharma, it's really interesting when you look and you say, from a physician point of view, customer experience may have an impact on substitution. If I really had a poor experience with a company, I may look for substitutes. I may look for other alternatives to to satisfy that need. I'm still going to have a need. From the patient point of view, imagine that box again where you say, okay, what is it? Is it 10%, 20%? What percent of patients does customer experience and loyalty have an impact mm-hmm. on their switching rate? Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of cross that against conditions or therapeutic areas. And it's a really interesting question to say, in some categories, it may have a big impact. The customer experience, whether you deliver mm-hmm. or not, mm-hmm. that group that will be able to switch and does switch, it may be very high in some categories, whereas in other categories, and I'm just throwing one out there like oncology, for example, mm-hmm. maybe the More customer experience, elastic. yeah, it may have less in the sense mm-hmm. of the oncologist is going to make the decision, the payer coverage is going to make a de- the ultimate decision, sure. where the customer loyalty for the product may not necessarily have an impact mm-hmm. in terms of what the switching it's not rate necessarily is. only up to the patient. Anyway. Yeah, and I think right. that's a really interesting question where if the CX data really does matter and it has an impact on what you choose as an end customer, we really have to get a better understanding of where we're going to have that financial impact mm-hmm. where someone that may be on product that now the experience is not what they expect it to be. Do they have a willing alternative? Do they have a viable alternative? Is sure. there a substitute for that? Right. And so as you know, decision makers start trying to you know make um, you know, decisions based on the net promoter scores, maybe, you know, more so maybe, maybe these findings will help sort of drive the, the message home, you know, that they're going to need some, you know, direction on, on how, how do we exactly do that. So, um, yeah. but, you know, we'll, we'll get back to the, to the DHC uh, because it's all interrelated. But um, the DHC recently did a survey with pharma companies about trends relevant and interesting to your audience. The data from the study, this included, I think, 20 pharma companies, covered a range of topics, uh, and you identified some interesting points and themes for us. Uh, the first one you said uh, you'd like to talk about was digital benchmarking. Now, just to set the stage for this one, you know, over the last few years, we've seen pharma appoint chief patient officers, chief data officers, chief privacy officers, chief digital officers, all of whom were probably charged, you know, with, if anything, getting the industry up to speed on things like AI and data and analytics. So, you know, how is that panning out? You know, Mark, tell, tell the good folks at home, you know, what you found in your digital benchmarking uh, of those 20 companies in terms of their prowess there. Yeah. So one thing we've tried to look at is to say, how do you compare yourself to other industries? And we've been asking this for, you know, several years now. So when we did this in 2019, how do you compare yourself to peers when it comes to digital, you know, digital for marketing kind of benchmarking? And it was about 43%. So let's say close to half of the industry saying we're very far behind Mm. other industries. It's like roughly another 20, 23% that are saying we're slightly behind. There's only a small number that are saying we're average. And it really does bring this question of we we do have this kind of consensus thinking that we have the tools out there. Mm -hmm. Technology is certainly from marketing and advertising and customer engagement has just made significant impacts over the past 10, 20 years. We still have this continued thinking of we are not executing on everything we could be doing in terms of using the technology to find the right customer, engage the right customer, and retain the right customer. And it really is that question you know, that kind of brings you, why? 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a valid question. Yeah, we, we, yeah. Every time you go to one of these industry conferences, you do hear a lot of the same thing. Someone will, you know, sort of make a joke to the effect of, on a pharma speaker at least, of, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this is pharma, uh, so, you know, we can... We do have limitations and, you know, <laughs> right. you hear people talk kind of in the hallways and outside in the receptions of, you know, hey, this is the same presentation for the past 10 years mm-hmm. is where mm-hmm. is the innovation in this right. industry? Right. Where, where can we kind of point to things that are really pushing the industry forward? Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, that, that begs the question, what's holding the industry back? You know, was it legal and regulatory, which is the usual, you know, boogie, boogeyman? What, what did you find there in terms of the, the, the obstacles? Yeah, so legal and regulatory always gets thrown under the buses. This is why we can't do it. What was interesting in this latest round when we did it was the top reason was lack of knowledge and lack of education within the teams. And I think this does speak to this need for not just talking about what's out there or having agencies and vendors come in, but it really is this need to kind of continue to educate. You know, one thing you do hear a lot is, as companies continue to right size or try and find what the right model looks for this new commercial model, you've seen a lot of companies that in many cases have gutted kind of those middle layers, if you will. So you've got senior management Mm -hmm. and then you've got a lot of somewhat junior people. And there really is that need for education about not only what the technology is that I can use, but how do I apply this? Um, And certainly pharma is very well versed in using a lot of partners, whether it's on Mm -hmm. the agency side, the creative side, the technology side, but what we were hearing from Pharma is we really do need more education within the team and across teams about what we can do, how we should be using some of these technologies um, to really get a little bit safer. Because I think, as we all know, in a lot of cases, the safest thing is to do what your predecessor did. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily get rewarded or the, you don't have an incentive to try something new in many cases. So education was certainly a key one. And the other one that was top, which was still above the legal and regulatory perceived hurdles, was this idea of the lack of communication and coordination within and across the company. And that was something that kind of came through in a lot of the things we talked about is, and this is, again, nothing new, but it was interesting as you look at it specific to innovation is a lot of the companies saying, we may have ideas, but this ability to kind of share what's working across the company is the siloed thinking or the siloed approach to how we make decisions internally Uh, It's almost on that kind of brand by brand basis Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is if we can figure out how to take some of those insights that we've learned from and spread those as best practices and share what we've learned, that we think that would help us kind of at the corporate or the organization level to kind of do things that we may have necessarily, you know, not been um, embracing in the past. Sure, sure. Knowledge uh, diffusion um, is certainly uh, always an issue in corporate America. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about general market trends, uh, what we should look for in 2020 based on your interactions with the DHC network. Like any good MBA, you conducted a SWOT analysis asking pharma about their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Let's run through some of those highlights in terms of strengths. The overwhelming response was we are patient-centric, right? We're focused on patients, uh, which brings up the debate, just how focused are brands on the patient? Is the patient experience really the primary metric of success for a brand? Yeah, I mean, that, and not necessarily a surprise, but for me, I think when you look at this and you say collectively, and it really was across all the companies you talked to, what makes you unique, what makes you successful as a company, you hear this theme of patient-centric, patient-centricity, the customers at the center. Yeah. Uh, and as you mentioned, there are chief patient officers, and we now have this introduction of you know patient experience officers or customer experience officers. And, and it's not to be negative. I'm certainly, I'm the last one to say, mm-hmm. oh, we're just not 
executing on anything we talk about, but there seems to be a massive disconnect between we say getting the patient right is the core of what makes us successful as a company. And the other side of that, if you say the customer is the patient, when you talk to the patients collectively, compared to every other industry they deal with, they're saying at least from kind of an experience or kind of a, an image study type of a you know, perspective, they're putting us dead last. So there's that big disconnect between this is what makes us successful. And when you talk to customers and have they compare pharma to other industries, they're saying, no, you know, there's still a massive disconnect pe- between right. the two. And again, it's right. not to say this is a negative thing. It's a thing saying, hey, this is a reality check right. of why right. is this happening? Yeah, it's a real opportunity. Yeah. I mean, ironically, exactly. what, what was thought to be the greatest industry strength has turned out to be a disconnect from the external environment. So it's really uh, disconnect between what the brand's believe to be the strength mm-hmm. and what the end patient believes to be the situation today. Right, right. Weakness. Uh, the consistent themes here uh, were too many silos, right? We're too slow to make decisions. We only focus on what has worked in the past, not what will may work in the future. It's interesting that culture and organization remains a key barrier perceived or real when brands try to explain what holds them back from innovation. Uh, how, how do we make these organizations more nimble? Yeah. And, and again, these are, I think, where the companies like McKinsey and you know, uh, the great strategists of the world can go and kind of look at how do you right size, how do you resize, agile marketing. These are all terms mm-hmm. that you hear consistently across most companies today trying to figure out what is the right structure? How do we go go to market faster? How do we do this idea of, you know, we all hear this term fail fast and, you know, how do companies become more nimble? And it's not necessarily something that, you know, is inherent to the pharma industry. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it is a different model. I think yeah. if you look and you say you're a software developer, yeah, you have to do agile. You have to do you know, things a certain way to do iterations extremely fast where that's not necessarily the case with a company that does annual brand plans that may take three to six months to move mm-hmm. an idea from, from inception to execution. So I think there's these big changes that happen along the way. And the great thing is, I think you know, we see companies now out there that many that you've featured in the magazine, mm-hmm. right? You see what companies like Novartis are doing and you know, from the C-suite down saying, we need to rethink the way we make decisions, how we use data, uh, how we can be more nimble with what we do, and how we mm-hmm. take a much broader view of what the product is, you know, what mm-hmm. our service is. So I think, you know, culture takes time, I think, like anything. And, um, you know, the, the, the challenge is, and I always go back to, I mean, this is even thinking back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's tough to have really, truly disruptive change in any industry when things are good, mm-hmm. Right. right. The auto industry gets turned upside down when new technologies come, right? Or the PC industry or the phone industry. When new ideas that really radically disrupt the way you do things, you're forced to make decisions because you don't have an option. And I think that's been part of the challenge, a blessing and a curse is that, you know, when you're successful as a company, you don't necessarily have that motivation to say, let's blow everything up and start from scratch. Sure. As you do in many other industries. Right. Or you can be disrupted within a period of two to three years. <laughs> right, right. So, so the, the, uh, the, the pressure to change is not as great as the pressure to stay, stay uh, status quo. Opportunities, um, you know, just we're um, you know, running short on time, so we'll try to uh, keep, keep it light. But, um, you know, uh, do we need to have the next generation transformers within our ranks who can look at this industry differently? Do we have those, you know, transformers within our ranks? Um, you know, we, we did a, um, a piece uh, looking at, you know, um, the chief digital officers, and a lot of them had been hired externally, you know, because they had that unique combination of big 
company management skills and the um, you know the e um, the digital skills. Um, do do you think that the uh, that that's an issue? You know, bringing people up within the ranks uh, that can really think differently about the industry. Yeah, and that was certainly something that came through very loud and clear. Was this consensus? You know, thinking around. We need innovation from the outside. And as you mm-hmm. mentioned, companies have tried to bring in CPG. They've tried to bring in, you know, different types of retail, you know, folks who really know customers. And what's interesting, and if you see these experiences, some in individual cases, some you can kind of look at as a pattern, is the risk is bringing someone that really does think outside the box into pharma. One of the biggest risk is them burning out very quickly uh, in terms of, hey, I have all these ideas Mm -hmm, and constantly mm -hmm. met with, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. And that may be a legal issue. It may be a risk tolerance issue at the company level. Um, But certainly this idea to bring from the outside in. And it wasn't just from a people level. What was interesting too, we were hearing this idea of, we think we need to think outside the box into who our partners are in the future. And I think that speaks to this idea of trying to understand digital therapeutics, the role of data. You know, we certainly know that not just drugs, but any treatment is going to be data driven, mm-hmm. you know, in the very near future as AI becomes, you know, laid over with all the claims data and everything else we know about what works and what doesn't work, that's going to have significant impact. So I think there's this idea of not that we don't trust what we have internally, but sometimes you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. right? And this idea of, you know, and no one's going to sugarcoat it. It's you, you don't necessarily get rewarded for taking outside risk. At certain levels. So you say, if we want to learn from what's possible, it may be this idea, how do we bring in people that have taken not only those risks, but can help us think about what the new model of healthcare looks like. And one thing that, you know, I've been thinking about recently is this idea. Also, we spend a lot of time thinking about how digital impacts pharma marketing. And those are very tactical things about tools that help us do better marketing, better mm-hmm. retention. Mm-hmm. The other element of that is kind of at the bigger levels to say, how does digital health change pharma? Right. And this is a much more fundamental question of all these things like EMR and data and AI that's being applied, where we know there's these big macro level changes to how technology and data will change how healthcare is delivered, including drugs, 10, 20 years into the future. And we're trying to understand where we fit into that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So you, you talked about digital therapeutics already, which is kind of, you know, the, we had talked about that under the threats umbrella. You know, obviously, companies uh, view the non-native companies that are getting into healthcare now as as a threat, like Google and Amazon and, and Apple. Um, and um, you know, wh- whether digital therapeutics, you know, when digital becomes the treatment, can really disrupt existing pills. You know, uh, the the jury's jury's out. You know, we haven't yet seen whether you know a, a, a digital therapeutic is is kind of disrupting a, an insulin market or something like no. that. So, yeah. So so let's let's finish up and use the, the last bit of our time yeah. here, if, if you will, on 2019-2020 trends. Um, you know, there's a lot to unpack here, but just real quickly, um, you know, things that um, uh, were, were top of mind in your research, you know, what's changing, what's still confusing. How about I just kind of throw one out and you can kind of give your quick quick two cents on it and rapid fire uh, style. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Beyond the Pill. Yeah, I think it's one of those that it, it, it gets used a lot, but it may not have a lot of meaning. Uh, and yeah. it's interesting that it comes up top of the list. But I'd go back to what we started the podcast with is this massive disconnect between what we say is important, customer centricity, patient centricity, and what the patients are telling us. We say beyond the pill and putting services on top of the product is the most important trend as a business. 
but we're not necessarily executing on that. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, it is, it's back to that. Are we delivering against patient expectations? Health sensors. Yeah. So that was one that moved uh, on a relative basis on a year to year. It was one of the biggest movers in the top three. Um, and it's interesting. I think it's this idea that we have more things capturing data and whether it's a device for respiratory or uh, cardio related data, or our watches are doing everything from sleep to heart rate to everything in between. Uh, We've had scales for many years. And I think it's just this idea that the more data that comes in is more data we can use to judge outcomes in a very Mm -hmm. general sense. And that's exciting in the sense of, you know, whether it's to better understand what's working, what's not working, or how do we use this type of data for things like clinical trials down the road? AI. Yeah, AI is one of those big things. I mean, obviously, you can do an entire issue of MM&M on... We've got a, a feature coming up in October. Beautiful. It's, you know, AI, I, I think, you know, I always love the phrase that the AI startups or the AI technologists use is, we're not going to use the term AI in five, 10 years. It's just endemic. It's part of the way we do business. It's this idea of, think of a case where we need computers to go through vast amounts of data to make decisions. And we don't necessarily debate the value of automation in manufacturing mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm. We're not going to debate the value of AI in making decisions. Mm-hmm. And you go outside of healthcare, like for the legal industry, you don't necessarily have to have a lawyer reading thousands and thousands of pages. There's some great case studies mm-hmm. now where AI can be at the level or above a human being. And, sure. you know, for better or worse, things like radiology, we know that AI does a really good job at pattern recognition or visual recognition. Let's let it do what it does very well and let the humans do what they very, do very well. And I think we're going to have those conversations for marketing uh, very soon is we don't necessarily need to go through vast amounts of data. Analysts are going to have different roles. We're going to use AI to help us make better decisions with the data we have. Okay. And one more VR and AR. Yeah, VRAR is interesting. It, it, it was relatively low, and it's still lower in terms of the you know all the big trends, but it is moving. And I think it's for the reason we went through this kind of shiny button period with AR, VR, where you said, oh, let me take the product and wrap some AR. And wouldn't the physician love to see the pill fly around the office or fly through a field of you know wheat or something where we're <laughs> saying there's opportunities here to actually use it for what it does really well. Can AR from a patient education or from a physician education point of view, help them really get inside the head of the patient in some cases, or help them get inside and gain Mm -hmm. that additional perspective. Um, If you've experienced VR uh, in the outside world, you see the possibilities and it's just, it's amazing Mm -hmm. what you can do compared to five years ago. And so you think from an education, from a training perspective, it's, it's a lot of opportunity if done right. Right. As you said, it's not just putting an ad into AR VR and kind of retrofitting it. It's really making best use of the technology. Exactly. Well, uh, Mark, it's really been a pleasure as always. Let's do this again soon. Yeah, thank you. And if uh, anyone wanted to learn more about the DHC, uh, the website, digitalhealthcoalition.org. You know, we love talking to smart people in the network. And, you know, that was the mission from the beginning is let great ideas, you know, kind of share, move innovation forward. And uh, hopefully we're connect, you know, delivering on that uh, mandate today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you can find out more at the, the, the DHC website um, and, and get a hold of their research or, you know, find out about when their next event is. Um, and in terms of MM&M, um, uh, we've, uh, we, I wanted to thank everybody who's participated in a couple of our initiatives recently. We had the Inspire the End, which was our uh, gun violence social initiative and asking our audience to come up with solutions, messaging, um, uh, and creative to inspire the end of gun violence. I want to thank everybody for participating in that. We got 20 really strong submissions. Uh, some of them have you've already seen on our website, and some of them you'll see in our October print issue in full color. Um, also, uh, thanks to everybody who 
uh, filled out the career and salary survey. Um, we've we got a really robust sample of over a thousand respondents um, once again, and you'll be reading those results in a couple of weeks in the October issue. Um, one other housekeeping item, please, uh, if you haven't already, reserve your your table or your seat at the MMM Awards coming up October 10th in New York City. Um, and uh, that's it for today. Again, uh, thanks to Mark Bard for sharing his wisdom with us uh, and for being here today. Um, and uh, this has been Marcus Squids for the MMM Podcast. We'll see you next time.